Hey, peeps, just a friendly reminder, Crypto Beetle shows are never financial advice, recommendations, or trading strategies. The views expressed here are solely that of Robert Beatles and his guests. Robert Beatles is the co-founder of the Monarch Wallet, host of Trading View Sessions, Crypto Beatles on YouTube, and on several entities. Robert's opinions here do not reflect that of those entities. Some information shared here may not actually be factual. These shows are for information and entertainment purposes only. Never invest a single Satoshi or penny in anything without first seeking the counsel and advice of a professional financial advisor. Robert Beatles is not a financial expert or advisor. Investing in anything is super dangerous. You can lose all of your money, so always trade at your own risk. And one last thing before we get into this, please help us grow the family. Give us a comment and review on the Apple or Google Play Store. It's super quick and easy. Just scroll down, click the little stars, comment, and just help us grow the family. All right, so now that that's out of the way, let's get into this. What is going on, crypto family? So today we got Joey Krug with Pantera Capital with us, so pleasure to meet you. You too. Awesome, man. So we are at the BEF with Token here in San Francisco, California, getting ready to take the stage. I just got off. You're getting ready to go up. So what uh, what are you going to be talking about? You're going to be talking about uh, pet rocks on the blockchain, what you're investing in next, <laughs> what's what's going on? Yeah, so the, the panel I'm on actually is about monetary policy and, and cryptocurrencies. Monetary. That's that's always a fun one, right? Good old regulation and, and all that kind of fun stuff, right? But uh, I guess before we really start talking about crypto, man, tell us something about yourself, you know, where you're from, how'd you kind of get into the space, and, you know, kind of maybe what you do at Pantera. So I'm from a small town in Illinois, uh, like a farming what's, town of 3,000 people. Knoxville. Okay. How far from Decatur is that? Oh, it's actually like maybe an hour, 45 minutes. Hey, what's up, yeah. neighbor? All right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my aunt used to live in Decatur. Awesome. Man. That's where most, most of my family's from Decatur. So oh, cool. cool. Started off kind of like, started programming in middle school because my dad got me an old Apple Apple computer, like an old school one. Like from, you say Apple, you don't look that old. So how old? I mean, what, uh, what like, kind of Apple are we talking about? Like here? an Apple II okay. uh, computer. Okay. Yeah, really old. All right. But he bought it on eBay. They're going to see like an iPhone 5 or something. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that's how I started programming. But then got into crypto in, in 2011, just with mining Bitcoin. Then didn't really do a whole lot with it again until 2013, 2014. I was moved to Southern California studying computer science at Pomona and um, decided that I wanted to do something in the space because I thought that a lot of the good opportunities might be gone in a few years. Turns out that's not true, but <laughs> not at all. <laughs> that's what I thought at the time. And so I started working on, on a project called Augur. And that was like kind of late 2014. First ICO on Ethereum, right? Yep. So people look pretty smart right now if they had invested in that, right? <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. So you got into programming really young, and now you're at Pantera. So how how that kind of happen? Normally it's normally it's very different, right? Normally you're you're a coder, you're like I want to build stuff, want to do stuff, you know, I want to create you know something for the world to use. Uh, then you went to Pantera, you're like, so now you're going to find projects like mm -hmm. that and promote them to the world and invest them and invest in them and things like that. How how the swap from programming to investing happen? Yeah. So the way that happened is. It kind of started back in 2016 when, so I've been working on Augur, had kind of access to a lot of interesting projects early on because people would reach out because there were very few people building on Ethereum at the time. And at Augur, we'd done a lot of stuff, a lot of first things on Ethereum. And so they'd reach out for advice or feedback or just like ideas. Um, and so I started, I ended up basically syndicating deals. So I would invest a small amount of money because I had very little money at the time. And well, you were mining Bitcoin, so it depends. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I guess I, it's still a relatively small amount. Um, and so I, I invest, you know, a small amount of money into these startups, basically, and had a group of people who backed me, who would then invest in them alongside me. And these were pretty small in the beginning. And then in 
late 2016, I came across uh, 0x and wrote the first kind of seed check in, into that, that project. Um, that's kind of how I ended up linking up with the Pantera team because I wanted to introduce 0x to other funds to invest in. So I invested, I introduced them to Polychain Capital, Pantera Capital, Blockchain Capital, all the, all the firms in the space. And then anyways, after introducing them Pantera, to Pantera, really hit it off with the team there. Um, Dan and Paul were looking to bring somebody on uh, who had a technical background and who'd built stuff in the space. And so at the time, I thought that Augur was going to go live in the summer of 2017. So I was like, okay, this is a perfect opportunity. I can join Pantera. I can help invest and direct capital into funding companies and projects that will help things like Augur succeed. Because if you look at something like Augur, which we didn't address, actually, it's a prediction market platform, yeah. basically allows you to bet on future events. If you look at stuff like that, it needs a lot of underlying infrastructure in order for that to work, whether that's good fiat on-ramps, uh, scaling solutions, uh, better UI UX for like onboarding, all this stuff. And so that's a big portion of why I joined Pantera is in order to help things like Augur and other decentralized apps to succeed, uh, there needs to be people who've been there and had the problems in order to help decide how to kind of allocate that capital. No, that's awesome. And how, like, I guess, involved with Augur are you still? I don't like write software there anymore or anything like that, but I'm definitely involved in like the kind of product direction side of things, you know, kind of helping scope out the high level roadmap for what sort of things you want to do next, like the version two release, which is going to add support for a stable coin. So you can basically trade in effectively US dollars as opposed to having to use Ether. Gotcha, gotcha. And so when you came to Pantera, right, how'd, how'd that kind of come to be? Like, how'd you meet them? I mean, I understand you were working on Augur, but then you, you kind of made your little transition to Pantera. You got along with Dan and Paul, but how'd that meeting come to be? Yeah, so basically I'd, I'd introduced them to ZeroX gotcha. or told them that they should talk to them basically. And then uh, Paul reached out over email, asked if I wanted to have like pizza for lunch or something. <laughs> and uh, Who doesn't like pizza, right? And, and it, I actually didn't respond for a few weeks because like I was busy with something with Augur and then I eventually responded. We met, met up. Uh, turned out we thought pretty similarly a lot about like companies, how startups should work, uh, how teams should be put together, kind of that sort of thing. And I guess Paul uh, and Dan have been looking for somebody to kind of do this role. So the next meeting we had was with Dan. I think we had another pizza lunch. Uh, we had lots of pizza lunches back and forth <laughs> to kind of like figure out how this would work. <laughs> uh, and so, so basically eventually kind of realized that I thought it actually made sense and ended up deciding to join them in like May or June or so of 2017. Nice. So what's it like working with them now? So are you, you glad you did it or are you like, oh man, I should have stayed coding? What do you think? Yeah, I'm definitely glad I did it. Awesome. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty fun um, and it's also leveraged in the sense that like I can help people avoid a lot of problems that I've had in the past, whether it's building a, a project or, you know, something with hiring programmers or whatever it may be, you know, I can spend a few hours with somebody and help them avoid hundreds of hours of problems. So I think that's a kind of rewarding thing. Yeah. Another thing that I find really uh, interesting is, you know, adding you to the team adds like this smell test, right? So you normally, you know, VCs and people like that, institutions, when they go to invest, they're really just kind of, you know, relying on other people. They don't mm -hmm. have like their own internal team that can kind of vet the project, that can look at the code and be like, no, this guy's full of crap. This is not going to work and here's why. So that's really interesting that they, you know, added you and just kind of like their thought process into the investments and how serious they take it, adding someone like yourself that can actually vet these projects before they invest in them. So that's that's actually really, really cool. What's uh, maybe one, one example of how you found somebody, and you don't have to name names, but mm -hmm. like where you guys were looking at some kind of investment 
and you were able to look at the code or look at the direction they were going and be like, no, this is, yeah. this is all wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would say that, you know, probably the best examples of that is like tons of people say, oh, we're going to solve like the blockchain scalability problems, right? You know, some of these projects, like they have like a really nice, um, you know, test environment where they show that they do thousands of transactions per second and it looks all great from kind of an outside perspective, mostly like 2017, early 2018. And that's all know, on AWS on your own server. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So basically, if you look at their code bases, you know, they're, they're either all just on AWS where there are a few AWS instances connecting to each other. And so there's a handful of nodes or like they've made some weird assumption that isn't true in the real world. And so that's kind of the biggest issue is like somebody takes something, they make some assumption in their test. And that's just not not like how actually the real world works. And so then it looks really fast in the test. But in real life, it's it's very slow. Like one example of this is there's some projects that say like, okay, we're going to test how how fast this works. And like the test they use is like, we can verify like a signature that someone signed with a private key. But that's not like a real world use case. I think the best real world like scalability test would be like, how many zero X trades can you process a second? Because that's something where like it's it's in the real world. It actually is a use case that matters and it's kind of constrained by throughput. It's very useful. I mean, everybody's on all these different exchanges, right? So if you could have like a DEX, a true DEX or something like that, you would actually see, you know, kind of the muscle behind the, the mouth, right? Yeah. So, awesome, man. And so I guess, um, you know, at Pantera right now, what are you guys actively investing in? What are you guys looking for? Uh, what are you excited about in the space? You know, like this is, you know, kind of the market that we're kind of, you know, looking to throw money at. Yeah. So I say in terms of deals we've done recently, oh, at a high level, they're basically falling into two categories, right? Like, you know, bridging kind of the existing financial system slash fiat with crypto. So like onboarding on ramps, we invested in Wire, which is a basically trying to build like Stripe, but for sure. dApps where you want to get onboarded really quick. And then um, also developer tools. So like a developer tool company we invested in recently is um, basically trying to solve kind of the, the problem of like, if you're an Ethereum developer, you don't want to have to run a full Ethereum node because everybody knows that's a huge pain. And so they kind of do it for you. Those so are kind of not really stuff infrastructure. This is more like onboarding, right? This is more like layer two, maybe even layer three solutions of sorts. Yeah. So some of it's some of it's onboarding, some of it's infrastructure, infrastructure, and then some of it's like even things like exchanges, like we invested in Bact uh, and RSX, which are both kind of trying to build like institutional grade. Uh, exchanges. I can't let you go on that because everybody keeps asking, you know, when's back coming out? It keeps, is back like what they're constantly doing, getting pushed back, right? That's, it's kind of <laughs> like the, the meme out there, right? Pushed back again, uh -huh. right? So anyways, for, for people that, um, you know, won't let me slide on this. So when is back coming out? Do you have any idea when we, when we can possibly see them, you know, launching in the future? Yeah. So on the, on the most recent earnings call for ICE, which is kind of their parent company, they said that they're looking to go live, you know, sometime this year. And there's not really much certainty kind of beyond that window. I think the thing kind of, you know, holding back, back, no pun intended, and this is all kind of public information is if you look at it, it's really just kind of making sure that they have the right setup for how custody works such that they can get regulatory approval to actually do it. They actually just made an acquisition like a week or so ago of a company to try to help kind of speed that along. Gotcha. Yeah. Custody is uh, definitely a major concern, right? When you worry about hacks and all that kind of stuff and making sure that your money's safe. So yeah. Awesome. Well, hopefully they get that uh, work through here pretty quick. What um, What's maybe a blockchain out there that you guys are like really impressed with that you think is just doing things right? And you're like, this could be something. You know, a lot of people were, you know, all arguing saying, who's got the best blockchain? What, yeah. what are you thinking? Yeah. I mean, so Ethereum is always, always, you know, a great example, although they've, they've been a little slow on the execution side, I think, and have kind of tried to complicate things a bit more than maybe necessary in the sense that like ETH 2.0 roadmap, you know, originally it was just kind of be like one or two phases and now it's like six or seven phases. 
if you look at people who are kind of taking a more restricted approach, I think a good example, we actually don't own any of this yet, uh, but it's Zilliqa. Um, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. But uh, yeah. yeah, so basically yeah. what they're doing is they're kind of saying, we can't solve every problem, but we have solved transaction sharding up to a couple thousand transactions per second. And we haven't solved, you know, how do you shard all the data and how do you shard the state? But we have solved that one problem. We're adding smart contract support. And then we're going to, as a next step, we're going to make a programming language that's e easier to write smart contracts in than what we have now. And I think that's kind of a cool approach because they're basically saying, we don't have all the answers, but we have solved these few kind of small problems, which is something that's really, if you see a startup doing that, it's generally a very positive sign. I'd say the other example, which we are an investor in, is uh, a project called Near, um, which is basically a, a blockchain that's you know trying to solve the scalability problem uh, using sharding. And the team on that on that uh, project is all X Mem SQL, so it's like this old school kind of, well not not old school, but in blockchain years it's old sure. school um, database company that created really scalable uh, databases, and so they're kind of applying some of that same learned wisdom to the crypto space. No, interesting stuff. And, and I ask this because you're a programmer and an investor, right? So you have to really dive deep and look at all these different projects. So it's, it's very interesting when you, when you change hats, right? From, yeah. you know, tech guy to investor guy. And so I guess going back to the investor guy, when you're looking at these projects, I mean, obviously, okay, you've honed in on, you know, the sector you guys want to invest in. What makes you decide whether you're going to pull the trigger or not and actually invest in these different companies? What is it they need to do uh, to get, you know, your attention and to, uh, to get, at the end of the day, your check? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, is being in a large market. Um, and people really underestimate this. You know, if somebody came to me and said, hey, I have a company that has a pretty strong chance at potentially 10xing in return, I'd say, okay, that's cool, you know, goodbye, uh, <laughs> in a nicer way than that. But that, that's the reality, because if you look at, you know, venture investors or long-term investors like us, if you invest in 100 companies, you know, 65 of them kind of fail outright, um, and then, you know, 25 maybe go zero to one extra capital, and then, you know, eight or nine, um, you know, maybe like five to 20x. And then you get one uh, 100x or, or more. <laughs> unicorn, right. Yeah. And so if you look at it from that perspective, every time you invest in a company that you think has a strong chance of 10xing, you reduce your odds of finding the ones that can 100x because you've effectively ruled it out. So market size, I think, is a super, super important thing. The next thing, of course, is the team um, because... You, know, you need a strong team to kind of persevere through all the challenges. You need people who are, are decently aggressive. Um, there's, this, there's a study that came out in like the late 90s, I think. Sociopaths. About, about, <laughs> that one too, but I, I was going to say about CEOs and um, there's kind of two types, right? There's the type who take everyone's feedback, listen, um, you know, create a kind of constructive plan based on that. They actually do pretty well. They succeed like, you know, 40 or 45% of the time. And the other type of CEO is one who's very aggressive, listens to people, but then kind of makes their own plan and, and sticks with it, kind of no matter what anybody says, and just kind of, uh, you know, like... The Bezos, the yeah, Gates. Yeah, right. drives forward. And those ones succeed at a much higher, uh, you know, percentage. Um, I'm sure that, that those percentages have changed because this is like a study in like 98 or something. Um, but I think the general concept is true. So you want to find teams that are really willing to kind of um, go, kind of push the pedal to the metal and, and, and get past whatever barricades they need to get past. And the last part is the product. And, um, and, and like when I first started investing, like I initially thought product was very important, but it's, it's the least important because if you're in a strong market, you can adapt the product and you can adjust to fulfill the market's requirements. And then if you have a strong team, the product is going to change. 
And the only time the product doesn't change is if you have a team that's not strong and not willing to adapt to the market. And so the product part, especially when you're investing early stage like us, like Seed or Series A, um, the product may be completely different by the time the company you know succeeds or fails. It's interesting you say that. I've heard so many people tell me it's not about the product, right? It's just you know about the team or the idea or the market, you know, that it really doesn't. Even if the tech's not even real, or if they haven't even built it yet, they're still getting all this crazy money. So, I thought I thought that was interesting for sure. And so, you know, when when you guys are like investing, what's maybe some of the uh, some of the unicorns that you guys have hit? You know, that uh, you guys can talk about. And then also, do you have you know you hear you hear some negative you know sentiment when it comes to um, you know I guess VCs and things like that, where they have kind of this cookie cutter approach to all the investment vehicle or all the investments that they make. They have this way of just, you know, really coming down hard on, on the founders, on the team. And then they just, they don't really give them a lot of help or attention, stuff like that. They just have this, this uh, drill sergeant mentality. And then mm-hmm. they just, you know, kind of do that to everybody. They don't give everybody the, you know, a bunch of specific time. Um, they just, you know, I guess, temper them by fire, right? Is, is that kind of the Pantera approach or you guys kind of, you know, um, cultivate and nurture and, you know, give the people that they, you know, what they need and, and kind of help them succeed and deliver, you know, products and stuff like that? Yeah. So the way, I guess the, the first question is, um, actually, what was the first question again? I remember the second uh, half. Yeah. So I guess basically is, you know, what's your approach to investing? Are you guys like drill sergeants or are you guys kind of like nurturing and, and help the people, um, you know, build something, you know, that's going to, you know, benefit the masses? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so we're, su- we're super founder friendly. I'd say is one of the main things we do. So like, we're not going to try to ho- hyper optimize a deal um, for returns. I think that actually does a negative thing where like by hyper optimizing a deal, you actually decrease the chance of the company succeeding. So like we want like fair terms, obviously, but we're not going to like nitpick, you know, at the, at the very kind of low grain detail level. Instead, instead what matters to us more is kind of the macro big picture and high level valuation as opposed to necessarily tiny terms. And we do look at those. But we're not going to like pass on a deal because you know a term was like one percent off of what we wanted. Whereas some VCs will will do that. Um, in terms of like helping helping founders out, um, you know, I think the way I think about it is basically, you know, it depends how much help the founder wants. Um, so we have some companies where you know we have a weekly meeting with them and discuss the company, the direction, you know, all that sort of thing. And then we have other ones where. Um, the founder's like just killing it and just doesn't really want to talk to us or anybody else. They just want to focus on their business. And maybe if they need something, they'll shoot us an email and ask for it. And then we have, you know, everything kind of in between. And so it really depends on how much, you know, help or advice the, the founder wants. Um, one weird thing is that a lot of times you may not necessarily know that you need a, need a certain piece of advice. And so like an example would be like if your hiring process isn't functional or doesn't work well, um, you may not know that. You may just think that's how hiring is supposed to work. Um, it's like I've had this conversation with some companies, you know, portfolio companies in the past where, like, they just think that hiring is supposed to be, like, this terrible, you know, process to go through. But actually, if you have a really, like, refined process, um, it's, it's actually not as difficult as one would think, even though it's kind of the main challenge that most companies face. And so things like that, we're trying to work on, like, creating resources around that um, that we kind of give to every company and then kind of building upon those such that, you know, if somebody doesn't know that they need a piece of advice, maybe they'll see it like in like an onboarding handbook we give them or something. But the bigger thing I think is companies just reaching out when they need help and then we're happy to help them. Um, and then of course we try to contact our companies like on a you know quarterly basis uh, for anybody who like slips through the cracks, that sort of thing. 
Gotcha. And then the first part of the question was how many, you know, like unicorns have you guys had? What's like maybe, you know, something you can point to that's like, yeah, we did it really right there. Yeah. I'd say, um, the, so like one example is like in, in the first fund Pantera had, um, which is mostly just Dan's money, they invested in Ripple, um, which, which is very controversial, but from an investment standpoint, I think they did it right. It was like, it was a good return. <laughs> um, besides that, I would say, you know, like some exchanges, like we invested in Corbett in Korea, which got acquired as well as uh, coins.ph uh, in the Philippines for remittances. Um, and then kind of more recently, I'd say, you know, like uh, you know, ZeroX is a good example, I think. Um, and so that's, that's kind of more on the liquid side. And then, you know, more recent than that, most, most of the companies we've invested in are still kind of, you know, private and haven't really been acquired or, or failed. They're kind of uh, just still operating sort of thing. Um, I think Ripple is probably the the one that has the highest valuation at, at this point. Yeah, yeah, Ripple Labs, so XRP and all that cool stuff. So um, awesome. Let's see, what else was I going to ask you? I was going to ask you about uh, regulation, man. So what are kind of your thoughts on that right now, right? So you got, you know, people were a little, you know, a little worried about the Howey test and stuff like that. The thirteen pages that just came out, uh, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, basically making most things look like security tokens, right? So when you're investing in these companies. What's, what's kind of your test, you know, and then how do you guys look at these things? You know, what's your thoughts, you know, not only on how you look at them, but, you know, how you invest in them if they are, end up being a security token? Yeah, so back in, back in, I think, June, June or July of last year, uh, we actually registered with the SEC, so we're a RIA, uh, Registered gotcha. Investment Advisor. If you've seen the press recently, Andreessen did that recently yeah. as well. All of their guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, so they followed your suit. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think they just you know, probably had good lawyers who told them that it was a smart idea. But, Look at Pantera. <laughs> but that'd be cool if, if that was the case. But I think you know, so that's one step. So even if these things are securities being structured in such a way that we're set up to comply. And the other thing actually is since like January 2018, most project lawyers have been structuring the deals in such a way that even if they do end up being deemed securities, they're actually perfectly compliant. So in practice, though, if you drill down, what does that actually mean? You know, at a high level, oversimplifying, not a lawyer sort of thing, and it comes down to two basics. One is mostly selling to accredited investors only, which is unfortunate because I think, like, you know, when the I started, crypto. yeah, when yeah. I started, I wasn't an accredited investor, and the way I made any amount of money was was by investing in risky stuff. And so I think it's, it's very kind of pretentious to assume that, well, just because you don't have a ton of money, that you're stupider than, than somebody who does. Right. And those same people can buy lottery tickets, which sure. have a way more negative expected value than venture companies. That's kind of a side thing. The second piece is um, you have to hold the position for at least one year before selling it. And that's kind of a thing where it's like, in case a retail investor does buy it from you when you sell it, there's like this rule that, that basically if you hold it for greater than a year, um, you should be fine. And so those are kind of the two things that pretty much everyone is doing at this point. So how do you, what's your sentiment about the space in general? Do you think that we're, we've seen the worst of it? You know, do you think that, uh, you know, good times are coming? Is the bear market over? Is winter, you know, as in Game of Thrones, you know, is, is winter coming or is winter over? Yeah, I think winter, I think winter is over. Uh -huh. um, I think, I think at this point, it's really the, the main thing the crypto space has to fight, I think at this point is mostly itself in the sense that like we have to solve kind of all these big challenges on usability, just making this stuff so much easier to use than it is today. I think in terms of like a market pricing perspective, I think that, you know, the, the crypto winner on that side, I think is over. Um, it may be like choppy for the next year or so. Um, but I think, you know, people are holding their Bitcoin longer, you know, kind of all the sort of fundamental metrics that you can get, which there aren't a ton in a market like this, do show pretty positive signs. Gotcha. And what do you think is going to be like the ultimate, 
you know, crypto company that just, you know, knocks it out of the park, right? We've seen Binance, we've seen it with the exchange. What do you think the next big thing is? I mean, you've got your finger you know, right on the pulse of this market. You kind of know what's going on. What do you think is going to be the next big thing? Yeah. So I, one example is like, you know, I think, I think the biggest use cases of crypto are going to be just speculation. And people have this like mentality of like, oh, crypto should be used for all this other stuff. But in reality, I think speculation is, is the killer use case. And so there's two sub-use cases within that. One, which I think is very boring, uh, although I believe, and the other, which is very exciting, and a lot of people don't believe. So the first one is like digital gold. Uh, most people in the crypto space agree that Bitcoin is like kind of trying to be this digital gold style asset. I think it has a decent shot of doing it, but it's not very exciting. It's like, even if I own physical gold, if I own a digital version, uh, people are going to hate me online for saying this, but it's like, it's just not that cool. Um, the other use case I think is really cool is like all these synthetic assets and derivatives and DeFi things. And so if you look at that sector, it's basically things like Augur, things like Maker, uh, things like Dharma, um, where you can do things that you could never do before in the financial system. Like in Maker, you can get a loan, or in Dharma, you can get a loan 365 any time of day, and it's like an open marketplace, which is very cool. On Augur, you can do the same thing for trading, whether it's you know betting on a soccer match uh, all the way to a presidential election. And so these things today don't have a lot of liquidity. Um, they're very hard to use. In the case of Augur, they don't even accept a currency that's stable. And so the fact that they have any usage at all is kind of mind-boggling. And so I guess the way I think about it is, as those usability problems, as those scalability problems get knocked out, that's the area that I'm super excited for. Because I think it's, it's not only really cool, it's also a, a humongous market. So like if you look at digital gold, you know, if you look at kind of like, well, what are the two like markets that are so big, they're laughably large. One is gold, which is like eight to $10 trillion. The other is the deriv derivatives, uh, which is, you know, in the quadrillions of, of dollars. Um, and so those are kind of the two areas where like, sure, it's just speculation, but also speculation can have positive uh, externalities. And so if you look at like farming as an example, um, if farmers can't hedge their crop risk, it actually makes farming a very difficult, difficult task. And that's why, um, you know, you, you see a lot less farmers going bankrupt today than you did in the past where like if a bad, a bad crop, you couldn't hedge the risk and you just got wiped out. So I think these things have really positive effects too. It's not just, it's not like it's going to be like a Wolf of Wall Street, super negative world. Um, you can definitely have both. Yeah, no, I agree. A lot of great stuff in there. How far away from mass adoption do you think we are? I mean, I realize we have some hurdles, right? We got use case issues. We have volatility issues. We don't have, mm -hmm. you know, the right, I guess the, the right stable coins yet, the right automated service, services that people can trust. Um, it's still very difficult to use cryptocurrency in general for, you know, for the masses out there. How long do you think, um, how much further do we have to go before people start actually being able to use it? Like in the mass scale versus like the 1% scale? I think it's probably like a five-year five horizon. I mean, I think it, it starts to get, like, if you look at like a year out, it's probably like five times easier than it is today. That's still not mass scale. That's like, it's a cool side project on the internet that people are kind of excited about. Uh, kind of like, it's like Tesla Roadster scale. Whereas right now, like Tesla doesn't even exist in the, in the analogy here. Yep. And then if you want to look at like, okay, what's it take to make like a Model S? You know, that's probably like three or four years out in terms of like better fiat on-ramps, cheaper on-ramps, uh, more scalable blockchains. And then if you look at like, okay, what's it take to make like a Model 3 kind of scale, like easy, super easy to use thing that's like not super expensive in the blockchain space, there's so much developer infrastructure that needs to be built and um, so much kind of like things that need to be way easier to use for developers. Maybe that's actually five to 10 years. Maybe it's a longer horizon than, than five. But I think we will get there. It just takes a lot longer than people think because the blockchain space moves super fast in terms of price. But the actual development activity 
even though there's a lot of it, moves pretty much about the same as traditional development, traditional software development. Um, I would say actually even slower because there's less, less infrastructure to build on. Whereas if I want to make like a new website today, you know, I can do that in an hour. I can make a really good one in a week. And I can make like a great one in, in a couple months. But to make like a really good blockchain app, you know, I would say that today it's not even possible to make a really, really good one in terms of like, you know, that's a product that like you could see Apple making as an example. Whereas five years from now, I think that will be, will be possible. One of the things that, that I've talked about for a couple of years is Facebook coming into the market. So you've been hearing all types of, you know, you know, rumors and chatter about how they're going to be doing their own thing. Then they kind of basically went, uh, I think, live with uh, what's the name of that company that they just went out uh, and said that they're going to be partnering with. It was like something or other. Uh, I forget the name of it off the top of my head. I'm not sure. But uh, 3 billion users, right? So they got access to 3 billion users. Uh, if they create their own stable coin, what do you think? What kind of effect is that going to have on the market? Do you think that's really going to help start driving awareness into crypto, more mass adoption? You talk about ease of use. Facebook's pretty easy. Mm -hmm. Now, if they're able to start sending, you know, cryptocurrencies, they could, I mean, they could put my Visa or MasterCard out of business in like a day if people started accepting this, you know, for, uh, for payments, right? And with like 80 million businesses on Facebook and 3 billion users, I mean, what do you think that could do to the space? Yeah, I think it would be super positive. I mean, you know, I think if you look at kind of the impact of it, it's, it's not, you know, really competing with like all this decentralized finance stuff because it's going to be collateral backed, you know, in a bank account or in like, even if it's not a bank account, it's going to be like T-bills or I don't know what they'll use to back it. But if their reports are right. Fiat baskets, I yeah, guess. Yeah. And so if you look at that, there's a central point of failure. And so if you look at what use cases are good with central points of failures, it's really mostly payments and probably remittances because those people don't care about, you know, there being a central point of failure because they already have one today. And most payments are done like with you know, physical locations or online businesses where there's a point of failure, which is the merchant anyways. So you're probably fine trusting Facebook. And so if you look at it from that perspective, I think you're right. It basically, you know, despite whatever they say in the press about working with Visa MasterCard, I think the end game would probably be you kill Visa MasterCard. Exactly. Um, you don't let them know you're coming. <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, like it's, it's, it's a great PR strategy for Facebook to be like, well, we're partnering with Visa MasterCard. And eventually there's no reason those, those entities need to exist once you have adoption and scale. The other kind of interesting thing I think here is that, which is probably not very many people are talking about, after they get adoption and scale with this currency that's pegged, if they get really like actually real global adoption, almost like a global WeChat, there's no reason not to just depeg it and have like a, which this part kind of gets a little scary, which is where you have like a currency that's effectively like Facebook's currency. It's not backed yes. by dollars. It's just, it's just its own kind of like self-sovereign currency. And that's, that's like, I think like, not like 10 years from now, but maybe it's like 20 or 25 years in game kind of thing. It's backed by Zuckerberg's smile. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really worth a buck, right? Yeah. The, the one question I wonder about though, is if they're going to make it kind of open to the world, or if it's going to be within their own ecosystem to where you can only trade the dollars basically as a digital currency within the Facebook ecosystem, where if they'll actually expand and open it up to like the rest of the world to be able to buy coffee with it or something like that, because now you basically just bank the unbanked everywhere, right? So Look out Visa and MasterCard. And so that'll be, that'll be interesting to see what they do there. Mm -hmm. But I guess uh, personal questions for you, and then we'll wrap this thing up. So, um, you know, favorite book? What's something that's, uh, you know, most been maybe some something you consider like the most important book you've read that you basically recommend other people? Yeah, I mean, there's like, I, I guess I'll give two answers because one's like a cliche one that everybody says, and the other one's like one that most people probably haven't heard of. So Satoshi's White Paper? <laughs> that's a good one. Um, I was going to say, so the first one's probably like The Alchemist. Okay. Um, and then uh, there's another book called uh, Getting Rich and Rising Asia, which is a really weird book. It's written in the second person, so it's, everything is like you, blah, 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 blah. Right, right, right. And um, it's, it's interesting because it's one of, it's like, a, it's like a novel, basically, but 
I actually kind of consider it to be a, a business book in a sense. Similar and, to like the richest man in Babylon, that type of yeah, structure. that that kind of thing. Um, so it's it, it's a good one. Awesome, man. Favorite movie. Uh, favorite, I mean, this is cliche, but The Matrix. <laughs> the Matrix. I love it. Red Pill. Now you know Kung Fu. What about um, if you're president for the day, what's something that you would do? Uh, you could create a law, you could, you know, redact a law, whatever you wanted to do. You're president for the day. What does Joey do? Yeah, I would, um, I would basically, so like I had this, this idea would be basically you enact a law that basically enables congressmen. I don't even think you need a law to do this. It would just be like a strong encouragement where I'd like sign an executive order saying like, hey, you should do this. <laughs> when the idea is basically each congressman or congresswoman has like an app where their constituents can vote on what they think they should do for like certain bills. And then as a, as a representative, you can basically say, you know, I'm going to like listen to this, but maybe ignore it sometimes. Or you could even be like more radical and say like, I'm just going to do whatever my crowd of constituents says that they, that they want me to do. Man of the people, right? Yeah. And so like you'd have like, um, you could probably like figure out like some sort of like ID system to do this with, maybe just use like passports or something like that. <laughs> And uh, it would be like a direct kind of uh, rule by the people, which would be uh, very interesting. So I think a lot of people like would probably hate on that idea, but it's interesting. Just the politicians. Yeah, yeah, I just think the, the people would be all right with it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's. I think it'd, it'd be fascinating to see what happens. Yeah, I mean, imagine. No, like all the basically all the bills that they're voting for, you can plainly see. Well, the people said yes, and you said no, or vice versa. That'd be some pretty cool transparency right there. And then a fun question I always ask people is, you know, if you could see any two people fight, it could be a fictional character. It could be Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck versus real people, living or dead. You got like a cage fight, no holds barred. Who are the two people you'd want to see fight? Oh, that's an interesting one. <laughs> I've never been asked that question before. Um, I, I do it on and off for the past couple of years. But, yeah, uh, I'd say tr Trump and Joe Biden. Trump and Joe Biden. That'd be a fun one too, right? Yeah. Cool, man. Was well, there anything else you want to tell the people before I let you get, uh, let you get going? I mean, I think that's it. You know, if, if you want to shoot me an email or whatever, actually, best is Twitter. Just yeah, I was going to say, you, on <laughs> you're asking for trouble. You know, <laughs> what's your email address? No. Yeah, Twitter Twitter's good. Um, actually, I found that, weirdly enough, the, the pitches I receive on Twitter are higher, higher quality than email. That's interesting. You got to keep it, you have to basically, you know, boil it down into like a nutshell and then pitch it to you, right? Yeah, yeah, then exactly. you're pitching it to everybody at the same time, too. Very cool, man. Well, I sure appreciate you, man. It was a pleasure to meet yeah, you. Yeah, you too. All right, take care and God bless. Hey, peeps, just a friendly reminder, Crypto Beetle shows are never financial advice, recommendations, or trading strategies. The views expressed here are solely that of Robert Beatles and his guests. Robert Beatles is the co-founder of the Monarch Wallet, host of Trading View Sessions, Crypto Beatles on YouTube, and on several entities. Robert's opinions here do not reflect that of those entities. Some information shared here may not actually be factual. These shows are for information and entertainment purposes only. Never invest a single Satoshi or penny in anything without first seeking the counsel and advice of a professional financial advisor. Robert Beatles is not a financial expert or advisor. Investing in anything is super dangerous. You can lose all of your money, so always trade at your own risk. And one last thing, please help us grow the family. Give us a comment and review on the Apple or Google Play Store. It's super quick and easy. Just scroll down, click the little stars, comment, and just help us grow the family. 